0: Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Rating Room. Make sure you stick around to the end, we've got a huge announcement about what's going on over the holidays and into the new year. But in the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy the show.
1: Episode 10, The Spy Who Loved Me.
0: We have a Russian nuclear submarine and a British nuclear submarine both vanishing without a trace. KGB send their best agent, Major Amasova, and the British send their best agent, James Bond, to investigate. They clash with each other, but then when they get a suspect, an industrialist named Stromberg, they decide to work together, and the film ensues. So Jay, um, what did you remember before you rewatched this recently?
1: There's a few things I remember. And I think this is one of the, the most famous Bond films. So, and I think especially the opening sequence. So I remember the Union Jack parachute. Also remember Jaws. I think it's probably one of the most famous villains slash henchmen. I also remembered Agent Triple X as well. Couldn't quite remember her name, if I'm being honest, but I remember the character and what she looked like. I also remembered that... A large part of the film was set in Egypt, as well, and the the night scene as well. So the night show, so the bit with the pyramids and it, the when they're in Egypt. I remember that with the flashing lights and Jaws, and that, having watched this as a kid, I remember that being quite scary actually. You know, with Jaws being lit up. So they're the they're the they're the bits that I remembered um, beforehand. How about you?
0: So a short list uh, similar to you. I remember the. Union Flag Parachute uh, after the ski jump, I remember the Lotus Esprit, the car which becomes a submarine, and also like you I remember Jaws, um, and a little side note, I've actually met the actor who played Jaws, Richard Keel, he uh, came to my local town for like a a fun day, he was signing autographs and pictures for people and I was about maybe 16, 17 at the time, kind of really at the, the height of my Bond fandom, so this was a, a really big deal meeting a real-life Bond villain and he is huge he is a big big man that's for sure uh, so that was uh that's my claim to fame that's as close as I've, I've ever got to a Bond film so far.
1: So Andy so what how if you were 16 then how recent was the film released or was it quite a few years you know past in the past when it was actually or was it quite recent?
0: Uh, It would have been a long time past because I was born in 84, so uh, this would have been kind of 2000, 2001 when I I met Jaws. But I think it was around the time when the Bond films were being played on TV quite regularly. I seem to remember sort of 14, 15 sort of age. There was was quite a big deal at school where we were all watching the Bond films because they were on once a week, and then we'd report back to school the next day and we'd talk about, oh, did you watch the Bond film last night? So it kind of became a a little bit of a thing amongst my group of friends uh so that was probably what what kind of made it fresh in the memory at that time and then you know when he came to town um, and was signing autographs and pictures and stuff it was uh it was a pretty big deal for us did you get a photo with him i didn't know he had a, an assistant with him who was really quite pushy and just you know making him sign stuff as quick as possible and then shooing people away so that was a, a bit disappointing but uh he he was a nice guy They just didn't really have uh, the latitude to stick around and talk to people because he was being harried around by a pushy assistant. So let's let's get back on topic because I could probably talk about him all day. Um, So let's talk about the information that we collect about the film along the way. So the main villains, Jaws, we've spoken about and briefly mentioned Carl Stromberg. We also have uh, Naomi and Sandor as the other villains of the piece. And a few Bond girls in this one, we have Anya Amasova, we have someone who's referred to only as Log Cabin Girl, um, Naomi appears on this list as well, as, as well as the villains list, and also Felicia.
1: So the theme song that we're collecting, so this is Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. The opening credits, so Roger Moore, Andy, actually appears in the opening credits, and when I was watching this, I don't, I don't know if your memory's better than me, do you recall any other Bond actors appearing in the sequence as much as Roger Moore has in this one? Did you pick that up in terms of it was really noticeable and obviously it wasn't a, a stunt double. You could tell it was actually Roger Moore.
0: So I don't remember Connery appearing, other than when they, they were showing scenes from previous films, but that's not what we mean in this case. It's more that he was filming especially for the opening credits wasn't it um and i don't remember connery doing that so i think this would have been the first time it would have happened i believe daniel craig does in one or two of his films but i guess we'll find that out in future weeks to see if my memory is correct but i think this will be the first time of uh, of the series that bond actually appears specifically in the opening credits doing specific scenes as opposed to just cuts from the film
1: Yeah, so that's a nice touch. So, yeah, in terms of opening credits, we've got Roger Moore. We've got the usual naked models and silhouettes. So, I think that's just a given now, Andy, isn't it? In terms of the opening credits. And then we've got the gymnast performing on the gun silhouettes as well. So I think it's a strong opening credits in this movie. So the body count, the important body count. So the James Bond kills only 31 in this movie. So that's his Well, that's Bond's highest so far in the franchise. So he does get a a good few kills in this one.
0: Yeah, obviously very trigger happy. Um, We've got some pretty good gadgets in this one as well. So we've got a a watch that resembles a label maker, kind of getting messages from the watch on on kind of a string for label. We've got a ski pole that's also a gun. We've got a, a microfilm reader and the aforementioned Lotus Esprit, which converts into a submarine and finally, a wet bike that's akin to a jet ski. Another thing we are monitoring is how long it takes Bond to introduce himself as Bond, James Bond. This time around 35 minutes and 15 seconds, which is the longest it's taken so far. I was especially listening out for this, and I did wonder at some point, is this going to be another film where he doesn't do it? But it, he did, and it just took him a long time to get round to it. We are monitoring Martinis. And yes, there is a Martini appearance in this film, uh, but there's no hat throwing and in fact, no hat at all. So that's um, a no to both. And that seems to be a theme with the Roger Moore bonds that he's not much of a hat wearer. So Jay, having rewatched this back recently, uh, what was your favorite scene?
1: Yeah, I touched on it a bit earlier. So my favorite scene was the, the night show at the pyramids, which I just think was really cool. And like I said earlier, with the flashing on Jaws in terms of the light show, um, I just thought it added um, a bit of suspense. And I remember being a kid watching this and it had been quite spooky because he's obviously over seven foot tall. He's got metal teeth. It's set in, you know, nighttime, And that whole bit where, oh, I can't remember his name. I know we're going to cover it further on. sees Jaws hanging around while he's watching the show. And then he starts running, and and Bond obviously then is chasing as well. But then you see George is kind of like he's just so massive, just slowly walking to to catch him up. Um, so I think that was that was definitely yeah that was definitely my favourite scene. Um, what was your favourite scene?
0: So that was a good scene. Um, I believe the man you're referring to is Fakesh. Correct me on that later as we get to that scene if I'm wrong. Um, but I I liked what's a bit of a classic now for the bonds and that's the chase sequence this was not so much a scene as a as a sequence of of scenes there was um a car chase so bond and um a triple x are in the lotus esprit chased by a bike then chased by a car then chased by a helicopter then there's an underwater sequence as the esprit goes from the road into the water becomes a submarine and then they're chased underwater as well so i think that whole sequence of events I really, really enjoyed. And there was some, some really good action within that, particularly the helicopter scene, I thought the way they they kind of did some stunts with the helicopter was, was really quite cool. So, so yeah, that, that whole section of film was, uh, was my favorite part. So another question for you, Jake, how many times did you reach for your phone when you were watching this?
1: Just the once this time. So I did really enjoy the film, but. Um, My favourite football team was playing on the same night that I was watching this. So I did flick on my phone to check the score. Um, I got a notification through, so that's why. So I did enjoy the film, um, but there was just the once. What about you?
0: Also the once, but for different reasons. So as they were um, wandering around Egypt from various locations, I checked the location names because I recognised those parts of Egypt because it was the same places that my wife and I visited when we were on honeymoon. Um, so particularly I recognised Karnak and I, I recognised Abu Simbel. Um, very different then than they are now, but um, I would—I just wanted to sense check that I wasn't going crazy and they were, in, in fact, the same places that I'd visited many, many years ago.
1: So Andy, question then. You know the scene where Bond and Agent triple x goes back to the ruins and then they're basically the the british and russian governments have got like a a secret base yep is that in a a part of the ruins where people can go in or is that basically just not at the pyramids and just a set that they're made up do you know could you tell from the interior shots
0: so from the interior i wasn't sure if they used the real location or not it looked, it certainly looked quite authentic, but it's very, very different now than it was then. So I believe it was at Abu Simbel, which is miles and miles away from everywhere. And in fact, um, when we went to Abu Simbel, we had to get up at a ridiculous time in the morning, get on a coach, drive to a specific location a few miles away, and then wait for an armed escort. So we had to be escorted in into the place by an armed escort. Then once you were there, you could wander around freely and you know enjoy the sights but there were there was no touching of the artifacts allowed no touching the walls because it was quite delicate and also no photography allowed so not because the, the flash can have damaging effects on the walls so the fact that they were able to film something in there does seem quite surprising but it did look certainly from the outside it was it was the real place so it may have been partly a created set but i'm not entirely sure about that
1: so andy uh, a big question now what did you give this film out of 10?
0: This was a solid effort. I went for 7 out of 10 for this one. Much improved from what we saw last week. I really enjoyed this. So 7 out of 10, I think, is a, is a good score, score for what we've seen so far. How about yourself?
1: Yeah, the same 7 out of 10 like, like you. It's definitely an improvement on last week's film. We can obviously see the rankings later on in the episode. Um, I think we said in the last episode that there was three years delay isn't there compared to the man with the golden gun. So maybe those three years helped get things, you know, sorted out a bit better. And we've gone from one extreme to the other away from the, the kill count where, you know, the last film bond gets one kill In this film. We've, you know, we've said already that he's got 31 kills, so an extra 30 kills in this film. So those extra three years of, you know, added 10 kills per year. So no, definitely. I think it was a, um, strong entry seven out of ten
0: absolutely Uh, more importantly jay what did your wife think of it she fell asleep this one she she
1: i don't know how much she she missed but every so often i turned around and she was asleep and you know sometimes when she's nodding off I, i try to keep her awake and she gets a bit grouchy but i let her do a bit of sleeping but then when i looked around later on she was awake so she did see all the ending. So I can't remember exactly how much she missed, but she did say it was better than the man with a golden gun. So, you know, her her judgment review was the same as ours. There, she also said obviously one of the things that um, the misses said previously is about um, the the bond girls being quite weak, and you know, bond coming over is chauvinistic. So she liked triple. X, you know because she's obviously strong the, the russian equivalent of bond really isn't she minus probably the um sleeping around but so she did like that but she she did say and this is a common theme so i don't it's not a criticism really but she did say why does the films always end with bond being rescued or in the water with a woman so there is a bit of a common theme there isn't there in the old bond franchise
0: but you go with what works don't you so uh and, you know, he is a commander of the Navy, so the chances are he's going to be around water at certain points in time. Shall we run through some facts and figures and some uh, some talking points? So this was a two-hour, five-minute film, which I believe is identical to the previous film, The Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, as you mentioned, there was a three-year gap, so this was released in 1977. And returning to the helm to direct this was Lewis Gilbert, having previously directed You Only Live Twice.
1: Yeah, so thanks, Andy. So we're going to talk about some general points now in terms of the bits that we've researched and some talking points. So, Andy, I'm going to kick off straight away talking about money. You know I like talking about budgets, box office returns. And the last few episodes have been... I don't know if it's been critical, but, you know, we have discussed that the budget for the last few movies have always been the same or there's barely been any increase in budgets that have been quite tight. But this so far you know at this point um, in terms of where we are in the franchise this was the biggest and most expensive bond movie at the time so there was a 14 million dollars budget for this so the last two films before this was seven million dollars each and this is 40 million so double um the budget of you know the the man with the golden gun and um living let die
0: and i think it was noticeable as well i don't know how you felt about this but i th- it felt bigger budget
1: yeah i think especially um if i come on to my next point from this point on when you look at the budgets they've they've just seemed to grow significantly so i think one of the things that contributed to this was that they they built their biggest soundstage at pinewood studios for the super tanker scenes where you've got the the three kidnapped nuclear subs. So at that time, that was the biggest soundstage in Europe. That cost, I think that cost about $1.5 million to build that particular um, set. But also in terms of box office, so Andy, you know, you're spending all this money and you obviously want to get a good box office return. And that, this is what it did. So this was the best performing Bond movie so far. So The Spy Who Loved Me took million dollars in worldwide box office so that is the biggest so far we are going to track these now we've been talking about box office returns and budgets last few episodes I don't think we covered much did we at the beginning in terms of box office returns and budgets but what we're going to do we're going to talk about the the rankings of of the the budgets later on in the episode
0: yeah, you're right. We've talked a little bit about budget, but not so much around box office. And if memory serves me correctly, this is a huge increase from last week, where I believe the box office was just slightly less than hundred million. So to go up to one eight five is a is a real return on investment. Like I said, and maybe the three year gap has actually helped matters because it, the people were missing their their bond fix and to wait a little bit longer, so the, the anticipation built clearly worked.
1: Yeah, you're right Andy and um, apologies there I thought I put that in the notes in terms of what I calculated the difference but obviously not so slap on the wrist for me so yeah so you're right the man with the golden gun took just under 98 million dollars and obviously this one as I said is 185.4 you know doubling the budget Andy they've added pretty much nearly 100 million to a box office return so not bad there
0: Good effort on everyone's part so let's um, let's continue on so one of the villains is Sandor, played by Milton Reed, who was also in the very first Bond, Dr. No, as a guard, and also played a guard in the Casino Royale movie of 1967, which was obviously an unofficial Bond film. And it was said that he also wanted to play the role of Oddjob, and he challenged Harold Sakata to a wrestling match to determine who should play Oddjob. However, the producers, knowing that Milton had already appeared in Dr. No, They stopped the match before it even took place. Uh, Milton himself was a wrestler known as the Mighty Chang. He was in over 50 films, um, but sadly died of a heart attack in 1987.
1: And it's interesting, Andy, we can drop wrestling into another
0: Bond episode. Indeed, it always makes me happy when we can talk wrestling, that's for sure.
1: Was was the Mighty Chang famous or was he not? Have you heard of that? Was that not
0: a... He he wasn't famous in my house. I've never heard of him. Uh, so, maybe not so mighty after all, but certainly one for for me to research after we finish recording, just to just to see what he was all about. But no, not not famous enough for me to know who he was. But let's um, let's talk about another one of the villains, uh, the main villain of the piece, Stromberg, created specifically for the film. The novel of the same uh, the same name was not told from Bond's perspective, but rather from a Bond girl who fell in love with him. And the entire film plot bears no resemblance to the plot of the, of the book. Um, so only the title remains the same. So that's quite a departure from what we've seen in previous films, where they generally follow at least some of the plot points. This was a completely separate plot to the book. And it was planned that Triple X would also make a cameo in Moonraker. But the cameo was never filmed. She was, she was due to appear in bed with General... Gogol, I'm gonna say. And um, but they never filmed it. So uh, we only got to see Triple X in this film, not in Moonraker.
1: Yeah, and interestingly, about the 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 bit about Ian Fleming's novel, and they did a bit of research about that. And I know later on we're gonna talk about the, the the book versus the the film. But yeah, apparently it wasn't very well received, the book. And when Fleming sold, you know, the rights to the the Bond character. Yeah. Um the condition he had was you can use the title of the, the book, but you couldn't use any characters or plot from that. So you pretty much, you know, the screenwriter had a, a blank slate apart from the, you know, obviously using James Bond. But yeah, it was in apparently in the book as well. Um, and, you know, have to make sure I don't duplicate anything. that would say later on, Bond is only in like the final act.
0: Right, interesting. Not really much of a Bond book then if there's no Bond in it.
1: Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, so thank you, Andy. So The Spy Who Loved Me encountered several problems during the, the filming or even trying to just to get it made. So, obviously, we mentioned that in the last episode, Broccoli and Saltzman, Saltzman, that this, you know, The Mount of Golden Gun was the last one. So this is it now. Um, Harry Saltzman has sold his half of the Bond franchise. He's gone now. And originally, the director they wanted was Guy Hamilton, but he he actually went and directed the Superman movie, so you can't blame him there. Superman movie is obviously a classic as well, and Guy Hamilton obviously did a number of different Bond films, so he, he went on to Pastors new. But I thought that was that was an interesting one. So they also had to do several rewrites of the script. And Andy, I don't know if this if we notice this or on the DVD versions that we're watching it was edited or, you know, in terms of when the film um, was, you know, originally released. But, you know, at the end, obviously, where they say what the next Bond film is going to be, originally they announced that the next Bond film was going to be For Your Eyes Only. But because Star Wars had been such a massive success around that time, they wanted to kind of capitalise on the sci-fi fantasy, so that's why they decided to adapt Moonraker. But I... Because obviously watching the DVDs and, you know, this is... 40-odd years afterwards. They must have obviously changed that, you know, in terms of the ending credits. Do you recall that? Or
0: I do. I I remember seeing it and didn't think anything of it as I was watching because I had not clocked that Moonraker was the next one we were going to watch. So when I saw this note, I kind of like did a bit of a double take and then I went back to the the box set that I've got and sure, sure enough, Moonraker is the next one we're going to be watching and I, I'd forgotten the order. So uh that's um interesting little tidbit there, and like you said, Star Wars, personally not a fan, but I understand it's quite successful, so you can understand why they would want to take advantage of that to you know maximize their their profits.
1: Yeah. So last bit for me before we you know move on is so yeah. So this is the second film in history of the Bond series where M refers to Bond by his first name instead of simply by Seven or Bond, but also. This is the first time on film that we hear M's first name being mentioned, which is Miles.
0: That is quite interesting because you expect the formalities between the two. Um, More so surprising to hear that M is not just called M and that we hear his name Miles in the film. So I did pick that up and um, again, did a little bit of a double take because I don't think we'd ever heard that. And sure enough, we hadn't barbara back who played triple x actually posed nude for playboy prior to the film's release um if you're interested a little little fun fact there for the listeners out there
1: yeah and interesting we've obviously mentioned in one of the episodes that the history with playboy as well and barbara back do you know who she's married to in real life
0: i do yes i was having this conversation earlier she she's since married uh ringo Starr. Yes. Um, So my dad knew that, he's a huge Beatles fan, so he was straight away there to tell me all about. And apparently they're still happily married to this day.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, they're definitely married. Um, But... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not so, yeah.
0: (laughs) Happily to be confirmed, but um, let's assume assume they are.
1: Yeah, let's be positive. But also, you know, I mentioned about the... What did you say when I said it was six degrees, and I think you said it was six degrees at Kevin Bacon? Obviously, Ringo Starr, and then we had a couple of episodes ago Paul McCartney doing the theme song so another linkage between
0: Bond episodes. Indeed do you, do you want to know another random one? Yes go on. Um, so there's, this, there's a podcast about James Bond called The Rating Room. I hope you guys are enjoying it. Uh, one of the presenters has a middle name that is the surname of a Beatle. My middle name is Lennon. Yes. So there you go. Um, some people like it. Some people don't, I and mean, I include my wife in that list. She finds it hilarious, <laughs> but there you go. So although this isn't the first Bond film to relocate M's office, um, it is the first to have Q Branch relocate. So we mentioned earlier the, the kind of the base in the Abu Simbel area of Egypt. Uh, we have Q there as well, not just not just M's office. We have Q Branch, and they're testing various weapons and gadgets, and uh, they've got you know the whole team on board. Um, catering to that particular region of the world. So that was a little fun fact. And final one from me, uh, we've mentioned the Lotus Esprit several times. Fantastic car. There's a scene later on in the film where, after he comes out of the water, so they're driving onto the beach, uh, Bond comically drops a fish out of the window because there's a bit of a leak in the car. Um, And that was just added by Roger Moore as a bit of a joke. So that's, uh, that's quite a nice little Easter egg there.
1: It is. When that happened on when that happened in the movie though, Andy, I immediately thought, how did that get in the car? Because if, if the fish that size could get in the car, the, the car would have filled up with water a lot more quicker than, you know. So that that even though I do think it was funny, when I saw it happen, I thought, oh. And then researching it, we, we obviously saw it was a joke. But yeah, that's where my mind went straight away.
0: Yeah. Big continuity error there.
1: So let's get into gadgets now. So obviously Andy touched on the, the gadgets earlier on, but we're just going to focus on two gadgets at the moment. So Andy's obviously mentioned about the Lotus, the Series 1. This, this is probably one of the most iconic gadgets. And Andy, as Andy mentioned, this is obviously the, the car that converts from the car into a submarine, then the submarine back into a car. So the, the 1977 Lotus that is you know that is actually featured in the film was sold well that the model nineteen seventy seven not so not that particular one but the model of nineteen seventy seven lotus was sold in twenty twenty one for just under fifty nine thousand pounds so i thought that was interesting and the car was nicknamed wet Nelly which was a little reference to little Nelly from you only live twice and so i thought that was that's good. And I am not a big fan of cars. I don't have any interest. It helps me get to, you know, from A to B. But I put that one in there, Andy, because I thought you might find it a bit interesting. And, you know, if you've got 60k laying around, you know, if you fancy buying a little Lotus, then, you know, you can get a 1977 model.
0: Yeah, I I saw this note and I immediately thought of something else. And I've just been looking it up while she was speaking there. And prior to it being sold recently it was actually bought by elon musk according to wikipedia which as we know is the most accurate reliable source of information on the internet because anyone can edit it but he apparently eight years ago he bought it with plans to turn it into a submarine you know in fact a usable submarine a bit of a strange man is elon musk but yeah he was apparently one of the previous famous owners i'm not sure i'm not sure if he's the one that sold it recently or if he you know sold it before then and it's been sold since but allegedly he is an owner or a previous owner
1: yeah so just to be clear the 1977 model that sold wasn't the one that was using bond as in the one that was a submarine it's the one so in the film apparently they use six or seven lotuses And that model is from that year that you. So I think I saw that article about Musk buying a Lotus and trying to convert it into a sub. But yeah, so that one wasn't exactly the same one in the film, but it was that model, just to be clear, in case anyone comes back to us on social media.
0: Thank you. Appreciate you setting me straight there. Let's talk about another one of the gadgets, uh, the wet bike. Um, It was a prototype of the Spirit Marine vehicle that would launch the following year. And it was a market leading craft until the mid 80s when the jet ski took over. And uh, the last wet bike was produced in 1992. So, a fairly short shelf life with a wet bike, you know, around 15 years, I suppose. Um, But yeah, very much reminded me of the jet ski. Um, I think you mentioned it as well earlier on. Um, But yeah, the precursor to the jet ski was was this wet bike, and um, it was around for about 15 years or so let's move on and talk about some of the kind of goofs or continuity errors that we talked, you know, we noticed as we were watching the film back. So we mentioned the fish, which is a bit of a, a bit of a joke, but also potentially a a plot hole. And, you know, if you've got a big fish going into a small hole, insert your own joke there. But another one notice was a scene when Sandor is about to fall off the roof. Uh, He's holding onto Bond's tie and the grip that he has keeps changing. Um, it goes very low, you know, on the tie, you know, a few inches left, and then it goes higher up, so he can slide down the tie again. So, um, a little bit inconsistency in terms of where and how he's holding Bond's tie, trying to save himself.
1: So, yeah, thanks, yeah, thanks, Andy. So the next one that we got was when the submarine. So I did pick this up as well. So where the submarine when Bond, um, Bond's on the you know aboard the sub. Later on, and they can see—is it the liparus? Um, is that how you pronounce it. And it's like you know, thousands of yards away, and on camera, you can see it's like in the distance. And then, like a few seconds later, oh, it's suddenly there. It's behind the submarine, ready to swallow. So yeah, and you know, because it's there was no cut scenes or any kind of it was it was live, air quote. So that that was a bit of a continuity error. How did that ship get so close to super tanker to the? Um, to the sub that Bond's on that's it in terms of well there's obviously more continuity errors but we just picked out a few there so we're into the opening scene now so this is before the, the music that kicks in so Andy obviously the last few episodes we kind of focus on the gun barrel sequence and as mentioned in the last episode Bond is now wearing a, a tux or dinner suit depending on you know where you come from Moore's Bond continues to use both hands. So he's obviously had a change of outfit and now he's using both hands still. So he's, he's kept the pose to, you know, to fire his gun. Also, this gun battle sequence is being used now for the remaining Roger Moore films. So he's had two different sequences for his films. Was there anything that you picked up Andy in terms of that bit?
0: Yeah. So the tuxedo was kind of, as we spoke about in a previous episode was how I've always remembered the, um, the gun barrel sequence misremembered it turns out and um, but this one i noticed was he wearing flared trousers i put i put in my notes flared trousers question mark because obviously you don't see it for very long and i, I didn't want to rewind back but it um it they looked like they were they were flared which would fit into the fact that they were in the 70s and flares were big then so i'm told but um interesting that that's that's the choice of outfit and then for them to continue on um i don't know if that was you know at risk of becoming outdated in, in future films yeah
1: it's interesting and I didn't pick up the flare trousers and would you have flare trousers with a tux I don't know even in the 70s I don't it's before our time even though I'm older than you Andy I wasn't around in the 70s so yeah I'm not too sure and Andy I don't know when you saw this note if you looked on YouTube because I was watching this on YouTube a few times so Wikipedia, as Andy already mentioned, isn't always the most reliable. So, Wikipedia states that the gun is not actually fired by Roger Moore until Octopussy. So, the rationale for that is on Wikipedia, it says that there's a lack, lack of gun smoke. So, usually in the gun battle sequence, you see the Bond shoot and there's like a little puff of smoke. Now, for the next few films until Octopussy, there is no um, smoke but i don't think that's correct so i don't uh, you know when i watch this on youtube and i watch it a few times i think there's the smallest bit of smoke fired in these next few films but then when it gets up to pussy there is a bigger puff of smoke so i think that's where the argument's come from so i think the gun smoke is less noticeable in the the spiral of me moonraker and for your eyes only but i still do think there is a, a puff of smoke did you, did you happen to look at YouTube at that? Or did you just kind of
0: disregard that comment, Andy? I wouldn't say disregarded, but I didn't research any further. And I, I don't understand why the gun isn't, I'm sure the guns fired every time. Cause that's the whole point of the sequence is he turns and shoots. So I'm, I'm not buying that. I'm, I'm calling fake news on that.
1: So Andy, I think you need to go and watch it on YouTube. And if my theory is right, I think we need to get on Wikipedia and edit that comment.
0: I will write a strongly worded letter if they are incorrect, that's for sure.
1: And 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 if it comes up with source, we can put the rating room and try to get a bit of traffic to our website. <laughs> <laughs> so also another thing, thing picked up Andy, and you know I, I didn't pick this up actually uh, until my research, is that the the background of the gum barrel sequence. So not where, you know, the, the blood comes down. It's the, there's like a tint to the background. It changes in every movie that moor's in. So it used to be white. And in this movie, The spy who loved me, it's eggshell, which, you know, I know it's just off white, but there is a difference. And then later on, there, there is a slight tint which I didn't document here because we're doing, you know, the Spyro love me, so I didn't want to do spoilers, but there is. I thought that was an interesting little change. You know, they're, they're mixing it up with a gumball sequence a bit.
0: Yeah, I mean, from white to eggshell is not a huge change, so yeah, not entirely noticeable. But what I will say is if we get a sponsor like Dulux, for example, then we'll definitely include this in our rankings for future episodes. Uh, but until such time, unless we're going from like red to green to yellow to blue, I'm not sure we're going to pick these up in future, are we? Let's be honest.
1: No, no. Like, like I said, it was when, when I saw it in as part of the research, I went on YouTube, watched the gunpowder sequences to pick up the smoke as well. And then that's where I noticed it. But yeah, I agree. Unless you're going from say pink to green or something like that. It's very subtle.
0: If, if it's noticeable, I'll make a note of it. And um, just so you know, other brands of paint are available. For any DIY decorators out there, uh, let's move on from that. Let's get into the opening scene. So, uh, submarine navy headquarters. Uh, lots of breaths on display on the wall. Um, looks like posters or pullouts from magazines stuck on the wall. Adds nothing to the film, but noticeable for some viewers at least, including myself. Um, and also, George Baker makes a return. Uh, we discussed George Baker on the on Her Majesty's Secret Service episode where he played Hillary Bray. Um, and this is the last time that george baker would appear in the james bond franchise he has actually appeared in a, at least one bond movie for all of the actors that have played bond so far so he was with connery in you and i live twice he was in On Her majesty's secret service with lazenby and now he's with roger moore in the spy who loved me moving on to moscow uh, we see a woman in bed with a man and your wife thought this was george lazenby i'm led to believe um, we find out that the, the woman works for the KGB and goes by the codename agent triple X. And the guy is Sergei Bosov.
1: Yeah. So when this first, so this is obviously when the missus was awake, when this scene came on, she was going like, Oh, is that, is that bond? You know, the, the other bloke. And I'm like, what? But she has this thing where she, she, she says it's true. She's Googled it where she has face blindness or something. So, she struggles to recognise people. I just say to her, that's an excuse. So when she goes out, she can get off with people because she thinks they're me, but she she has this faint face blindness. But yeah, so to be fair though, the, you know, the actor that plays Sergei does look a bit like George, I thought.
0: <laughs> I tend to agree. And I think the scene is set up to make you think that the agent is Sergei rather than Agent X. So there is a Bond-esque quality to the scene, I would say. But clearly, it's not Bond. It is another man. Um, I think your wife just thinks all Bonds look the same.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. So we're in the cabin in the woods now. So Bond has a new gadget. So, and it. sorry, I just want to go back on the gadget. So do you remember when Roger Moore first came in and we said in that episode where it was a conscious effort by the producers to kind of remove Q for that, you know, the first film, live and let die, reduce the number of gadgets. So from memory, the man in the golden gun, we said last week, didn't have any gadgets, did he, Bond? And now we've gone to Andy, I think Andy's going to check the notes to see if I'm right
0: there. Um, I think you're right, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm racking my brain.
1: And now straight away in the, the first scene where we see Bond, he has... Uh, you know, as you mentioned, the label printer. I couldn't think of another word for that because it's, it's. you know, we would say a label printer, but it's coming out of the watch. So I thought that was an interesting one because it's not even Morse code or anything, is it? It's actual, you know, um, English language that's coming a out.
0: Very, very, very early text message, isn't it? <laughs> yeah,
1: And imagine you can't have much ribbon in the watch, can you say? It would have to be um, very short. You couldn't even get a Twitter message in there and limited characters, could you?
0: It's it's funny you say that because I, I didn't note this down, but I did think that the message seemed unnecessarily long. because <laughs> I'm sure um, I, I'll have to find out what the exact words, but I'm sure it like says hello Bond or Bond or so, something where uh, or you know hello Bond it's M or it's it's you need you needed it. there's something in there that I think is unnecessary because that is clearly a gadget for a very, very select group of people of which Bond is one, maybe the only one. So why do you feel the need to either introduce yourself and, or make sure you're going, it's not like you're going to get the wrong number like, oh, sorry, that's the wrong agent. I didn't mean to send that to. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. He's not got a, a big print machine attached to it. So it was a bit of a waste of lettering. I thought.
1: Yeah. And it's obviously in the seventies, so we didn't have all the tech speak then did we like lol and stuff. No emojis. Um, no emojis, yeah. And obviously Bond gets a message, and this is where we get the, the memorable ski chase. And I notice Andy, as well, that, that the film score seems to be a lot more modern compared to the previous Bond. So we're in the back end of the 70s now, but I, I really noticed that in this scene, you know, because we are just started and we've got this, like, modern feel in terms of the film score.
0: Yeah, I noticed that as well. I thought it was really cool music as well for this point. Uh, very good scene. Um, what I would say is some of the close-ups were a little bit ropey, you know, obvious green screen. But some of the faraway shots look pretty good. And the the chase obviously climaxes with ski uh, Bond skiing off a mountain with the Union flag parachute, and then we cut into the opening title sequence. Really, really memorable. Really cool scene. One of the one of the more famous ones of the Bond franchise, I would say.
1: I agree and the missus said exactly the same thing with the chase where the the shots that were um from distance looked really good but then the the other shots were um were a lot more she didn't use rope pick i can't remember what she said i was half listening to be honest but yeah she she picked that up so now we go into the opening title sequence slash the music music so there's some interesting bits here. So Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. This is the first theme song in the Bond franchise with a different title name to the film. So I did pick that up. But also um, that was reinforced as part of the research.
0: Yep. Uh, one one other thing I would say is it does mention The Spy Who Loved Me in the lyrics. You probably picked that up. Yes. Um, but, but you're right. It's not clearly not the title or the, the chorus of the song.
1: No, and also, maybe you know, this kind of goes back to um, the, the feeling of it being modern. John Barry was unavailable because he has some issues with his tax. So he wasn't allowed to return um, back to the UK at this point. So Marvin Hamlish, Hamlish um, was brought in to compose the soundtrack and theme song. So, yeah, so this is one of the th- few times where John Barry doesn't come back and from memory he he didn't do Live and Let Die, did he? Because we said George Martin, um of you know Beatles Fame did that score. So yeah, he's 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 done he's not done many of the one so far, isn't it then? Because we've had three Roger Moore, Moore films.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah he's had a bit of success and he's gone off and doing other things.
0: He's more 00, 003 and a half at the minute. <laughs>
1: So, Andy, the the soundtrack was nominated for three Grammy awards. So, the Song of the Year, Best Instrumental Composition, and Best Soundtrack, Best Score, soundtrack actually for visual media.
0: Pretty um, high ranking accolades. They're also nominated for two Oscars: Best Original Song and Best Original Score. Original score that year would be won by Star Wars. Um, I, like I said, I'm not a Star Wars fan, but I recognise the music hard to disagree that it it wouldn't win the Oscar. It's pretty iconic, isn't it? Um, Hamlish Works um, have actually been nominated for 12 Oscars in total and won three. All all in the same year for The Sting and The Way We Were. So uh, congratulations, Mr. Hamlish. Um, And finally, the theme song was a success and it's featured in numerous films over the years, including Mr. and Mrs. Smith, Lost in Translation, and Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason.
1: So, Andy, you mentioned Mr. and Mrs. Smith. That was a film that you mentioned previously, wasn't it, where you saw um, Jolie filming in America? Indeed.
0: I saw Angelina Jolie performing one of her own stunts. Um, Could have been me. Could have been me. But she went with Brad instead.
1: (laughs) So, yeah. (sighs) Never mind. (laughs) Well, she's not with Brad anymore, is she? So there's always that chance. You need to get back to America, mate. So, we're in Moscow now. So we, we've had the, the um, music opening score and now we're in Moscow. So we find out Agent Chippewax finds out that her boyfriend has been killed in action and the British agency was involved. So you, you kind of make that assumption, Bond. Um, well, actually, I think you, you do know it as Bond, wasn't it? And um, the audience knows it was Bond then because you see the um, Sergei, don't you? before he, he kind of has his mask down a little bit and you, you recognise him.
0: Yeah, the, the yeah. audience know, but the, the inner workings of the movie do not.
1: Yes. So this is the first appearance of General Alexei Gogol, portrayed by Walter Gotel, who is the head of KGB. So General Gogol appears in a further five Bond movies, so, actually, the, most of the more films, but also The Living Daylights with Timothy Dalton. So, I don't know about you, Andy, but I think I mentioned previously, I think the more films I, I watched quite a bit of, especially growing up, there seemed to be a lot on TV. So, when we, we meet General Alexei, I just recognised him straight away. It did bring back memories. And, obviously, he, he's in a further five Bond films. So, yeah, he, he's around. And
0: we're going to say, obviously, not on the villain side... Um, at the moment, but I wonder if this was in some ways a replacement for Blofeld. Not, like I said, not from a villain side necessarily, but just having a recurring character throughout the Bond franchise to to tie everything together, almost. Um, I thought as well, before we were really introduced to them, so obviously we saw the scene and before we knew exactly who they were, it very much made me think of the M and Moneypenny uh, set up that we have. So whatever the, the Russian equivalent of M money Moneypenny are, I thought straight away this is who they were. So I thought it was quite a nice nod. Um, let's move on from Moscow now. We're on to the naval yard. Next, uh, Bond meets up with various leading people from the British government, the Navy mi 6 One thing I noticed, he was quite serious in this scene. I think he made a, a little joke as he arrived, but then was very serious and professional. And I wonder if we're starting to see a more mature, sensible side to 007. Uh, Q is there, he starts to explain how someone can track the submarines. Uh, Bond, Bond is showing kind of like a, a transparent sheet that shows exactly the same path that the submarine took and it kind of perplexed the the leaders in the room about how someone could track that. So that was quite a nice visual in terms of how how they managed to track that. Although very primitive by today's standards for the mid-70s, I'm, I'm sure that was state of the art.
1: Yeah. And to be fair, Andy, thinking, you know, I'm only 40 and I remember using those kind of things at work, <laughs> where you put them on the projectors and stuff, obviously not tracking submarines or anything like that. But yeah, I remember doing that at work and maybe even college life. I'm trying to think back. So yeah. So obviously Andy's just mentioned that we, we see some big wigs from the government and Navy and MI6. Andy, I recognise this bloke. So we the actor, Robert James Brown, who plays Admiral Hargreaves, he really looked familiar. And it actually turns out that he, he he does play M in four Bond movies. However, it's unknown whether Robert James Brown is playing Admiral Hargreaves when he's playing M or they've recycled the actor. So it's not clear, um, you know, in terms of that. So you could make an assumption that, Admiral Hargreaves gets some kind of promotion and he becomes M. But, well, they might have just recycled actors. But, yeah, I thought that was interesting. So we've got Stromberg's sea base now. So one thing I noticed, Stromberg has got a very, very long dining table. And he's, he's at one end and he's got assistant taking notes. At the other end, while he's having this meeting with the two scientists who have invented this The secret tracking um, system for the submarines um, that we've obviously kind of been hinted at in the the previous scene in the naval yard the assistant is actually unnamed in the film but she is given a name in the the novel that comes with the, um, the film so this is not Ian Fleming's novel so what happened was they they made a novel that was Based on the film, but it's actually different as well. But it's not the in Inflamin, Inflamen's novel. So in the novel, she is given the name Kate Chapman. There
0: we go quite interesting, and um, yeah, I didn't realise there was a novel about a film that was about a novel. That's um, that's quite a complex way of doing things. Uh, but said assistant, Kate Chapman, or, or otherwise whatever her name is in this, uh, she's fed to the sharks for trying to sell secrets of the submarine tracking system. Uh, She goes into a lift that's at one end of the room and the lift floor opens up and she takes a ride on kind of like a, almost like a water slide, but there's no water. It's kind of a sliding tube that goes straight into the shark pool. And then the shark does what the sharks do. Um, At this point, we're introduced to Jaws and Sandor and Stromberg sends them to Egypt to find the device and basically kill everyone who comes into contact with it so we've straight away established that strongberg's in charge Here are his henchman they're going to do his dirty work for him so on to egypt we go and we see bond on a camel um question i have is is this the first time that bond rides a camel maybe the last time too um, i believe there are camels in octopussy but do we see bond on a camel again or is this a, a one-time deal
1: I think it's a one-time deal, Andy, but, you know, I'm happy to be pointed, you know, someone pointed out if if we are wrong um, on any of our social media accounts. Andy, just going back a couple of points, you know where they're introduced to Jaws and Sandor and Schoenberg, you know, makes that comment about kill everyone who comes in contact with it. It reminded me of Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. Do you remember where they're giving instructions in terms of making sure everyone that's part of the diamond smuggling ring is um, eliminated that kind of gave me that kind of vibe
0: yeah i would agree with that less of a double act these two i would say um very very differing characters i think mr winter mr kidd certainly went together like peanut butter and jelly as our u.s friends would say uh, but these were two henchmen as opposed to a pair of henchmen is how i would describe them
1: yes i don't think we see jaws and sandor skipping off holding hands do we so yes good point andy so we now see Bond arrive at Sheik Huygens' camp. Apologies if I got that wrong. And he's offered a vodka martini. So, oh, is this way he's going to drink the martini? You know, the one that Andy mentioned earlier. But No, he doesn't drink it. He's being very professional, Bond, it well. He's being professional at the moment. He's going to keep the conversation going. He's trying to get that information in terms of who, who he needs to find in Egypt. And then, you know... He, he said, you know, oh, I need to kind of crack on and stuff and get on. And then Bond is persuaded to stay overnight after seeing one of the sheik's wives. But also, Andy, the, the sheik and Bond know each other from Cambridge University. So the comment I made was, I wonder if the sheik studied Oriental languages too.
0: But of course, they greet each other in Arabic, which is not an Oriental language. So maybe it was more of a generic language course that the sheik took. One can only surmise. So Bond then arrives at Fakesha's office. He's greeted by Felicia, who is Fakesha's secretary. Um, I thought straight away Bond was acting very suspicious. Um, and Felicia was being somewhat flirty. And when she said to him, if there's anything I can do for you, anything at all, to which Bond replies, well, I had lunch, but I seem to have missed dessert. In that typical Bond style Felicia sees Sandor through the window. She screams. Bond reacts and spins her around and uses her as a human shield, which um, is very much akin to what Bond did with Fiona Volpe in Thunderball. Um, this is this is a note of Jay. Bond likes to use women in different ways. You filthy, filthy man. Uh, but yeah, absolutely right. He does. Um, and another thing that reminded me of a previous film, so there's a bit of a fight scene between Bond and Sandor. And Bond goes for a, a kick with his left leg, the camera cuts, and he hits with the right. And straight away, that brought me back to Doctor No, the very first Bond film, where Connery's going to go for a punch with one hand, and then the camera cuts, and he hits it with the other. So there's a bit of a unintentional nod there to to previous Bond films.
1: Yeah, so carrying on, Bond is very ruthless. He's He's, he's really focused, isn't he, on this mission at the moment. Where the more kind of version of Bond is quite witty, loving, charming, but these few scenes, he seems, he does seem across, he come across really focused, ruthless, and um, apprehensive. So we see Sandor is holding onto Bond's tie and he's, as he's hanging over the ledge, and Bond's like interrogating him, and Sandor gives him the information, and Bond just kind of sweeps his tie, and then Sandor just falls to his death. I thought he died quite quick. I, from memory, I thought he was in the film long, like, you know, not as long as Jaws all the way through, but that henchman was basically introduced in, um, you know, a few scenes ago. And then the first encounter with Bond, he he, he just dies. Well, obviously Jaws has an ongoing battle, doesn't he, with Bond.
0: Yeah, absolutely. uh, Two very different henchmen. Um, in terms of their capabilities that's for sure
1: yes and something i didn't make a note of but it reminded me was uh, my wife said sandor had no neck so just a comment there so i don't think he would have worn many times so i so this this next bit is where my favorite scene so i enjoyed the the night show at the pyramids i remember watching this as a kid as i said earlier and like I said earlier, this I thought this was really good, my favourite scene. It is quite scary as well. And we see, obviously, Jaws um, kind of chasing Fakesh. Fakesh is running and Jaws, he does jog a bit, but he's just doing his big giant strides um, to, to kind of hunt him down. And we, we see him, um, Fakesh obviously you know, goes into one of the ruins, um, locks the gate with his metal chain, but then we see him kill for cash and he's biting him like a vampire. So I did remember that, you know, Jaws did bite his victims, but yeah, it was like a, a vampire um, kill. And then in real life, Richard kill could only wear the metal teeth not for very long at all. I, I, I did originally write down Andy a few minutes, but then, I did a bit of research earlier on and I don't think even lasted a few minutes. Apparently it, it just really hurt when he put him in. So yeah, it, it, that must've been a bit of a difficult scene to, well, you know, throughout all his parts when he's got his metal teeth must've been quite difficult if it's um, quite a bit of pain. Cause when you look at him, his, his metal teeth basically just take all his mouth up, don't they? It's not really subtle, not like the gold teeth that rappers have nowadays is it? It's like a full metal mouth.
0: No, this this was quite a significant bit of kit that he's he's lugging around between his his jaws. Um, so yeah, I can I can imagine that that would have been quite painful. Uh, one question I have at this point: so he obviously kills him by biting his neck, but did you notice any blood in this scene? Because I didn't, and that's not to say there wasn't any; it just means that I didn't notice.
1: No, I didn't notice it, and I I thought the same. Because obviously you're ripping out someone's, you know, this massive patch out of someone's neck. You would just imagine it all gushing out, wouldn't you? But no, I didn't notice anything there.
0: Uh, So obviously Jaws played by Richard Keel, legitimately over seven foot tall, uh, seven foot one. um, We've got in the notes here. I've seen exaggerations that maybe he was seven foot three, maybe he was seven foot five, you know. It's always the case when you have these larger than life figures that, you know, they're, their mystique grows over time and you exaggerate more, but a legitimate seven foot something. We'll go with seven foot one because that's the most reliable research we have, Uh, and also appears in two Bond films. So he's in this one and then in Moonraker. One of the more popular henchmen, one of the more more memorable, that's for sure. Um, But even though he's in two films, he only has one line of dialogue and that's in Moonraker. So not a lot of speaking to be done. Uh, which is good if you if he struggles with remembering lines. Another question about this scene, why did Bond take the diary from Fakesh? So or sort of, why why didn't he? Um he skimmed through it to find out the schedule but then he just throws it away. Could have had all kinds of other information in there. Wouldn't it have been wouldn't it have been useful to, to keep it, but he just throws it away?
1: I agree, Andy, and this just brings back memories of the third nipple that he just discards in a man with a golden gun. You know, he just frivolously throws it in the, the bushes. Because, yeah, he skimmed through it, but he's under pressure, so it is just a skim. What about there are some secret codes on some page or is it lemon where people can write stuff in lemon ink or something and you need to shine up to light could have been any kind of hidden tactics or techniques that agents use, but yeah, he, he, just threw it. He just, he just got rid of it. He wasn't bothered. So the, the actor who played for Kesh is Nadim Sawala. Apologies if I got that wrong, cause I'm really bad at pronouncing names. He is also, you know, we, we've said this numerous times, but we see actors being recycled in the Bond franchise so he also plays a police chief in The Living Daylights. So that is a good few years in the future as well, isn't it? There.
0: Some some foreshadowing there, yeah. And another example of recycling actors for the Bond franchise. Also that just random note, which you probably knew the father of Julia and Nadia Sawala, very famous acting family that they have. Yes. And Bond
1: and Triple X meet at the nightclub later on and the meet Max Kelber. So Bond and Triple X have obviously done their research into each other. So this is evident when they are ordering each other's drinks. So I thought that was a nice little nod. As as you would expect, you know, counterparts, um, opposite numbers and different agencies are going to be doing their research. And as we've mentioned on numerous episodes before, everyone knows who Bond is anyway. So, you know, it's no secret really. But then... We, we see X listing some other bits that she knows about Bond and she says Finn's about, you know, lots of lovers and she mentions some other bits, but then she mentions that he's been married once and we we see Bond get a bit, I, I see Bond, you know, Moore's version of Bond gets a bit sensitive and I think this is the first time within the Moore's version that it's been mentioned that he's been married, I think, Andy. So I don't know if, if if you've if it's been picked up in, in previous movies, but I think this is the first time for more that it's mentioned.
0: Yes, I think you're right that it's the first time that it's mentioned. And I took this to be continuing the story from when Lazenby was Bond and got married in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And obviously we know that his wife was tragically taken from him on his wedding day, so the marriage didn't last long at all. Um, and that to me kind of explains why he was so sensitive about that comment, even all these years later. So, moving on, we're, we're still in the uh, the club, I guess, and uh, Jaws strikes again. Max is in the telephone booth, and Jaws kills him. I did notice blood this time. There was a bit of blood on his shirt, not, not gushing amounts pouring down his neck, but there was a little bit of blood on the shirt, so I'm okay with that. Um, Bond finds Max, but it's too late, he's already dead, and just randomly drops uh, an out-of-order sign. On his lifeless body, obviously done for a bit of a, a joke, but I just didn't see the point of that. Seemed a little bit callous
1: or childish.
0: Very childish. It goes against my earlier comment of him being a more mature, sensible Double O Seven. He's obviously still got a, a not a nasty streak, but a um, a teenager like streak. Bond and Triple X hitch a ride in the back of Jaws' van. Uh, they don't think. That Jules knows, but he knows he can hear them. There's got like a microphone and speaker set up, so he can hear everything that's being said whilst he's driving along, um, and they are oblivious to this.
1: Yeah, I thought that was um, quite funny that bit because obviously when I when I, I didn't remember that he had the the speaker, the microphone set up, and we see, we saw Bond kind of sneak into the van, and I am thinking, oh. I hope he doesn't slam the door, you know, Jaws is going to hear. And then she comes in and gets in, and then they start talking. And I thought, oh, they're not being very discreet, are they? And then obviously it cuts to Jaws driving and he can hear everything they're saying. So it then obviously it goes, you know, he's driving for quite a while, Andy. And we then we see, so Jaws then gets out we see Bond and Truffle are searching for Jaws through the Egyptian ruins. So you made a comment here, Andy, in terms of where this was.
0: Yeah, so this is the Karnak Temple Complex, which is near Luxor. Um, Very great, you know, very nice place to look around. Lots of great carvings. You know, I don't work for the tourist board of Egypt, but if you ever get the chance to go, it's a fantastic place.
1: Yeah, so there's a... So I I did like this scene, actually, because where they're looking for Jaws, there's a bit of suspense, they, they separate and then they... One of them, I think it's triple X, kind of goes around the corner and they kind of knock each other's backs or something in, with Bond. But then there's another scene where you can see like the scaffolding further up, like in the, not in the sky, but you know, in the um, the air kind of thing. High up, we see Jaws um, walking across the scaffolding, don't you? And I, I liked all that. And then we get the bit where then George tries to knock down um, some kind of block or column onto bond and he he, you know he moves out the way and then we see a bit of fighting there and after a short fight they get the microfilm from jaws and then more kind of positions himself to the next to one of the columns and then jaws kind of swings with i can't remember it's a piece of wood or or something and knocks all the, the ruins down onto jaws and then, we, then we, we think, oh, that's over. But then we saw Jaws, his hand comes out. And, oh, he's still alive. And then we see Bond and Triple X in the van. And they're, they're having a bit of bickering. And she's looking for the keys. And um, he's got the keys. And then, you know, they're messing about. But he's just really casual, isn't he? There, He's not in no rush at all. And then we see Jaws come back. And he's just so strong. He then rips off the, the roof of the, the van. He's lifting the van up. He, he's tearing bits off the van as well. And then there's this bit of banter between... She's she's panicking, isn't she? She's wanting to, have to hurry up and kind of drive off. And then Maw's just like... there. I think he's even got his arms folded at one point. He's just like, oh, just sat there casually. And then he makes some quip about woman drivers. And then I like this bit because Triple X then later makes a quip about shaking, not stirred. And then it just cuts the bond and he just doesn't look impressed at all. And I thought, oh, you know, she's a match to him in like nearly every way, isn't she? And I don't know that it was deliberately put in there to kind of show, you know, she's just as good as him in terms of like
0: everything. Very, very different to kind of some of the, dare I say, bimbo-esque Bond girls of recent films. Um, Certainly very strong, uh, powerful character. Um, And like you said, she's a real match for him.
1: I know we're going off topic slightly here. I think some of the Bond f- films that are better is when they have stronger female characters like um, Pussy Galore as well. With Goldfinger, we know we ranked highly and um, we've given this one 7 out of 10. Obviously, we're going to talk about the rankings a bit later on, but this is another strong female
0: character. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think the the characters around Bond are just as important as Bond himself. And if you've got those kind of wishy-washy characters that don't really add much, it it kind of brings the whole film down I think you're absolutely right about that so the they do escape in the van which is you know in a bit of a state after Jaws has done a number on it but then it just completely falls apart and breaks down and this to me felt a little bit slapstick because they played some kind of like comedy soundtrack over the top not quite as obvious as say Benny Hill for example but it was that kind of style that I thought where it was you know it was clearly a a slapstick moment which um is a little bit out of place for Bond films, I would say, but um, that was just one thing I noted. So they end up having to uh, walk for a bit, and then they go on the boat and end up at the shared base, which I believe is in Abu Simbel, as I mentioned earlier, and that's where we see that the UK and Russian agencies are working together. We mentioned this earlier as well. Q is there, and he's got a gadget room, and he's got various things being demonstrated in the background, and and throughout Bond and Triple X are clearly trying to get one up on each other. There's obviously a competitive rivalry between the two, shall we say?
1: Yeah. Andy, just to go back to what you said about the comedy music, when you mentioned about that, a bit slapstick, I immediately thought of the man with a golden gun and the jump corkscrew, you know, with the sound effect. And when you're saying that, so we've had back to back films there with a bit of slapstick. I'm wondering now whether this is the start of it, because this is, I know we've had it, we've touched on it, I think, in only one or two films where they, they've got Q's gadget room and you see like other bits happening in the background. But this one was really noticeable where they were focusing on certain bits as Bond and Triple X and Emma, you know, walking through the area and they're doing like little bits and you're focusing on. But yeah, I, think, I don't know. This is a point where things are going to get. Um, a bit over the top of the gadgets, I don't know.
0: I think that the gadgets do go over the top. You're absolutely right.
1: So we're, we're now on a train. So we see Bond and Triple X and they, they're they in neighboring compartments on the train. And my wife you know, mentioned something as well. And I was thinking, this. so Bond is flirting with Triple X and then he goes to his room. And then he's just hovering around the door. He's just like, oh, surely she's going to come in. She she can't resist the charm of Bond, and he's she's like obviously hovering around. Um, but then we see Triple X open a wardrobe, and Jaws is in there, and he's obviously you mentioned over six seven foot tall, and that wardrobe is you know it's obviously how how long has he been stood in there waiting has he been waiting basically since you know before dinner they've been waiting you know they've been having free course meal and everything he's just been like hunched up in that that wardrobe or or not so yeah I think he was glad just to get out there
0: yeah that's not going to be a full-size wardrobe either is it for a train (laughs) it's going to be he's going to be pretty hunched over in there
1: I think it's really intimidating and he He kind of has that smile as well, doesn't he? So we we see the fight break out between um, the three of them. Well, she doesn't really do much, does she? She gets um, knocked out, doesn't she, from memory. And then this just brought back memories of the the train fight with Grant in From Russia We Love and then Teehee in Live and Let Die as well. And we also see Jaws get thrown out um, of the train by Bond and then we it's funny because it you know, Jaws lands and rolls down this you know the embankment and then he kind of just dusts himself off and then he's just like, Oh, and it I'm just gonna crack on. And then he just he doesn't seem fussed at all, does he? He's really resilient.
0: Very impervious to pain, it seems. Uh, I, I noted a couple of things about this particular fight scene. Um, in particular, there's one point where Triple X kind of slaps him around the face and then later on Bond lands a punch on him. And it doesn't have any effect, so Jaws is clearly not uh, affected by this at all. But neither are Bond and Triple X. And the reason I say that is because earlier on in the film, Bond punches Jaws in the mouth and really hurts his hand and sells like his hand has been crushed almost. So there just seems a bit, a little bit of an inconsistency there with um with those two particular fight scenes and once they've dispatched of of jaws uh, bond is getting nursed back to health by triple x and uh, he makes some uh, suggestive comment about using her nighty as a bandage so you know bond is not fully mature and sensible as we thought He's still got that uh, that dirty little boy streak in him
1: indeed so we we're, we're in sardinia now and q arrives with the lotus and I like this little nod, Triple X calls him Major Boothroid. So I like that because I don't think we've heard Q be called by his name and title, especially since the early movies. So I don't remember. It's been quite a few movies, actually.
0: I think it may have been actually his first appearance was the last time we heard his name mentioned. So, yeah, I think you're right there.
1: I think that was a nice little touch in terms of keeping it formal, you know, from the Russian side so again you know talking about bond being a bit childish bond is you know now he's he's being successful in wooing triple x soon as he sees naomi get off the boat in a bikini and the flowy little top fin whatever you want to call that bond is just pulling out all the flirting and then he keeps just turning to triple x you know and she just seems to be getting jealous um I think that's intentional and I think that is Bond trying to kind of get the upper hand in terms of, you know, either being competitive and getting um, one on e- one up on each other. So that's how I interpreted that in terms of um, trying to put a, try to make a loose focus. But the thing I just noticed Andy was Naomi was, you know, obviously they're in the Sardinia. It was very hot, sunny, Naomi is very attractive in her bikini, but Triple X seems to be wearing a teapot cosy on her head, this little woolly hat. And I just thought, what is she doing? It's just, just, it just, it didn't do anything for me. And you know, I like my hats and Bond's not wearing a hat, but yeah, I'm not liking Triple X's hat there.
0: Yeah. If it's bikini weather, nobody's wearing a hat. Let's be honest.
1: No. And Naomi did look very nice in her bikini. So, we we now see them getting a the boat, and they're going off to S- Stromberg's base. Now, I don't know if you class this as special effects because it, it's a model, but for me, for me and the missus the the model in terms of the scaling of when they're coming on the boat, it just looked really off and weird, and it was just really obvious that they used a the model. Um, so I don't know. Have you noticed anything on that, Andy? Because, you know, obviously sometimes they have to use models because of, you know, certain scales, et cetera. This one just seemed really off.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think particularly when you compare it to, like, the size of the the waves and the bubbles around it, it was clearly a small-scale model being used for kind of the faraway shots. Um, so on the base, uh, Bond is waiting to be introduced to Stromberg. Um, and Naomi says something about uh, Stromberg doesn't like handshakes. So as soon as Bond goes in the room, he offers his handshake it seconds later, which I thought was uh, a, quite an interesting way. And, and I think it goes back to your earlier point around how he's trying to get one up on triple uh, X. I think this is another way of Bond trying to establish himself as the alpha in the room and he's not going to follow the rules and he's, he's in control. But uh, also a little bit childish because he's just been told the guy he doesn't like handshakes so he got to shake his hand and we get some some knowledge of marine animals from Bond uh, obviously we're in the kind of underground setting and there's the various marine animals around and Bond demonstrates that he's got a lot of knowledge about this as well which you know adds to his previous knowledge of all things wine and uh, butterflies and oriental languages amongst other things and moving on from this, we then get to the customary car chase scene, which was my favourite part of the film. Um, we've got the, the motorbike and sidecar with the missile, then we get the car chase, and then we get the helicopter. A really nice sequence here, I thought.
1: Yeah, it was. And then we see, as part of the whole car chase slash motorbike chase, helicopter chase, we see the bit where the motorbike rider um, crashes and then goes over. And then the, he's covered in feathers and then Bond makes some quip about feathers and not being able to fly when the, the motorbike goes over the mountains. I thought that was funny. We also see that uh, this is obviously the, the bit that um, is his fav- favourite. So we get the iconic moment with Bond and the car converting into a submarine. And then we have a, a probably, a, I would say, a mini underwater battle. So not to the scale of Thunderbolt. But it's still very good, you know, when he's a submarine and you've got various Strombergs, cronies, henchmen fighting fighting him. So I thought that was pretty good.
0: Yeah, I like that. And I made a comment here that um it's a good thing that the windows were up when he drove into the water in the first place. One thing I would note, so there's a there's a comment as they're talking whilst they're underwater, Triple X makes some comment about how they stole the plans for the car two years ago. But I thought when they initially drove into the water that she looked pretty terrified at the thought. So then for her a few minutes later to say, yeah, we we know about these this car two years ago, seems a little bit out of place because surely she wouldn't have been scared because she would know the capabilities of the car she's driving.
1: That's a good point, Andy. I didn't pick up on that good
0: observation. Yeah, it's neither here nor there. So they, they have the kind of, little underwater battle as you discussed and then the car emerges from the sea onto the beach and um, all the holiday makers are kind of coming in to look at this car because obviously that's going to be a very strange occurrence for them to see a car driving out of the water onto the beach there was a, a scene that I thought was quite funny where there's a dog on the beach and clearly scared by it, and just legs it ran away I mean hopefully the dog was found safely but it was quite funny watching him run away scared
1: yeah, and this is a bit, so obviously I mentioned I checked my phone once and I was checking the the football scores, but also I was checking that there was a few mention of Jaws and obviously we've got the Jaws character. We've got this beach scene, which is kind of reminiscent of a, a Jaws scene as well. So the Jaws movie came out two years before this movie. So I don't know if they got any kind of um, influence there. Um, but we also see l- slightly later on triple X finds out that bond was the killer of a boyfriend and then vows to kill bond after the mission ends.
0: Yeah. This was um, an interesting point to drop this bombshell because uh, obviously they start to work together quite nicely. And then it creates this awkward tension between the two. We move on to the submarine super tanker Stromberg's base element and triple x is using one of the showers and uh, i can't remember the guy's name but he said basically you can use my the shower in my office and she's not closed the shower curtain properly so we've got a very good view of uh, side boob and nipple when someone walks into the room and um some sort of comment from the captain like hey, what's the matter have you've never seen a, a sailor take a shower before something along those lines but, you know, nipple watch is always one of the favourite parts of this Bond experience for me, because I am a teenage boy trapped in an old man's body. And you must have been um,
1: overwhelmed on that first scene then in the submarine. Do you remember at the very beginning of all the posters on the wall? Indeed, yes. When that first always came a, up. Always a good way you. to
0: start a film, yeah. But when you see them in the flesh like that, for, whoa.
1: <laughs> I thought... We'll, we'll cut that out, as childish. <laughs> I thought um, when, I, when I saw that, I thought the climax of Andy's movie had already occurred at the beginning, and it's all downhill. So Bond and Triple X uh, have both stated they've never failed a mission, so something's got to give. I thought this was interesting, Andy, because I think it's a shame we don't see Triple X again. And obviously, a lot of Bond gals we, we don't see um, in other movies. You know, uh, We obviously had Sylvia Trench um, at the beginning for those two movies. But if, if she's so important or is she's so good for the KGB, Russia, how come Bond and X's paths never cross again?
0: That is a good point. And particularly since we do see General Gogol. Gogol? 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 Gogol we, yeah. we, particularly since we do see General Gogol in five films in total? A fair so five, does, he, five. does he not want... Is not want his best agent every time?
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And I think she is a good, we have, a, obviously haven't got to the Bond girl rankings yet, but she, you know, we both said she's a strong character. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. And obviously you mentioned that at the beginning, she was supposed to make a cameo in Moonmaker, but it didn't happen. So yeah, may, maybe they just didn't put her in because then they're just focusing on Bond and, Triple X and the KGB and MI6 and then that's going to restrict him in terms of future Bond girls and future missions but yeah because I don't even think she's even mentioned and the fact that like you just said he you know um, General Gogol is in a further five films and it's kind of established that she's their equivalent of Bond Mm. why wouldn't she be in missions involving them so yeah that's just a a comment so another comment observation really was the super tanker must be massive to fit three submarines in massive because submarines aren't small and this tanker can you know the width of it can hold three different subs plus a bit more you know walk-in room and everything
0: this this is a Super duper tanker, rather than just a super tanker, doesn't sound quite so menacing, does it? But but speaking of the the super tanker, so there's a scene where it kind of swallows the submarine, as it were. The kind of the doors on the front open and the the, the submarine goes inside, and that's how it's been sort of stolen. Uh, this reminded me of the space scene at the beginning of You Only Live Twice, where you've got the the two missiles in space, and one's kind of like the jaws of the rocket open and swallow the other one also that was a a nice little throwback i thought i don't know whether that was intentional or not but i i quite liked it we we get a scene next where stromberg is escaping from the uh, super tanker and he kind of like shoots out of the side in his speedboat and it's clear at this point that it's models and dummies looking like something out of thunderbirds and i think this is you know we've spoken about some of the special effects or lack thereof in previous films. And I thought up to this point, this film was doing pretty well. Um, but this was uh, a call back to the old days of kind of real obvious cheap tax scenery. Just, you know, really took me out of the moment.
1: Interesting that you mentioned. So it was a good observation that it picked up there about the, the swallowing and You Only Live Twice. The director of The Spy Who Loved Me was the same director of You Only Live Twice. So maybe it's just kind of not reusing, but just well, can we think of the word <laughs> reusing it's, his ideas or something? or oh, he was he's, influenced he's by it earlier. He's
0: clearly swallowing on the brain for some reason. Let, let's let's move on while you make your own jokes. Uh, so Bond escapes, uh, frees the crewmen from the captured subs, and then there's a it's a pretty intense battle that takes place, and they they breach the there's kind of like a steel wall or barricade. Uh, when they they remove the detonator from one of the nukes, and there's a funny bit where someone asks Bond something, and he says, um, "It's his first time doing this," and the crewmen look really shocked, um, which is quite nice because obviously you expect Bond, who's kind of at this point, he's basically leading them, and he's saying, oh, "I've never done this before," so that was that was quite nice. Uh, one thing I noted here is because this is this is quite a big fight scene amongst many people. It helped me a lot that they were wearing red uniforms and blue uniforms, so I could quite easily see who the good guys and bad guys were so i I appreciated that for my my simple brain there's um there's another bit of this fight scene where there's some sort of like camera structure attached to the ceiling and it's like on a almost like on a conveyor belt on the ceiling, it's like a huge ball with various different cameras and Bond kind of lowers himself from the ceiling to sit on this this ball and straight away it made me think of the wrecking ball video by Miley Cyrus. I don't know why it just kind of, it tickled me the way he was sat there uh, astride this, this huge camera ball as it, as it went across the ceiling.
1: I think that's funny, Andy, when I saw your comment there that did make me um, smile, but um, I'd rather have Miley Cyrus on a, a wrecking ball, at least Moore was fully clothed.
0: Yeah. He, he had some dignity about him at least. As, as dignified as you can look while, while swinging on a big ball. Bond travels to Stromberg's base, um, and he outwits him by avoiding the earlier-mentioned trapdoor that's in the lift. And then he's sat at the other end of, of this long dining table, and there's, there's like a huge gun that goes underneath the table from where Stromberg is sitting, and Bond clearly knows that, and he, he fires a, his gun through the other end, shoots Stromberg, but in total, shoots him four times. And uh, I thought that was a, a bit ruthless on his part. Like, Did he need to shoot him that many times when the job was clearly already done? So that was a, a little note there. One one thing I noted as well was when Stromberg greeted 007, um, his exact words were, good evening, Mr. Bond. I've been expecting you. So uh, a little bit of a gimmick infringement of Blofeld there. Um, And I wonder if that was done intentionally because of the legal situation with Blofeld not being allowed to appear as a character in these Bond films. And I wonder whether that was just a little little sideways jab at that legal uh, position that they were in.
1: Yeah, and that's a a good observation again. So the last bit really that we see in terms of um, Stromberg's base is a funny little scene. So we see Bond using, well, Bond is being chased by Jaws and Bond, he maneuvers himself, doesn't he, to so the controller unit. And he, he can see that is a magnet above Jaws. And he's just kind of like shielding that so Jaws can't see that he's controlling um, the magnet. So again, I think this is funny, but it's very ruthless because he picks Jaws up by the magnet, lifts him up, and then he drops him into the sharp hole. But as we see, Jaws kills a shark with his bare hands and his, and his metal teeth. So Bond, you know, at this point assumes that Jaws is dead because he's dropped him in the shark. No one's going to survive, you know, being in a shark pool, are they? But as, you know, as the audience, we see that Jaws does kill the shark with his bare hands and metal teeth.
0: Yeah, that was, that was a good scene. I like that. Um, and you've described that very, very well and articulately. My note was Jaws versus Jaws. That's all I wrote for that point. I just thought, you know, you've got Jaws and you've got the shark. And I just thought Jaws versus Jaws, that writes itself. It does. No, I
1: I like your concise note there. And so that brings us to the the ending scene now. So I think it's kind of a given Bond needs saving and he's in in an escape pod. So he's being intimate with Triple X but also at this point, the audience sees Jaws swimming away. So he survives to fight another day. So I wonder when he's going to come back, Andy. I wonder if we have to wait for long. Yeah, so we see a funny, funny ending where we've got the heads of the UK and Russian Secret Service. And we see Bond, as I just mentioned, Bond and are being intimate in the skate pod. And then we see the, the heads of the government and the UK Secret Service and the Russian Secret Service looking through the, the portholes. And then Bond makes a little pun, um, which is a, another brilliant pun for Bond. And he just says, just keeping the British end up, sir. And then it, it cuts. And then that is the end of the movie. So what have we got now? What is our next regular feature?
0: Yeah, so let's, let's start with uh, a bit of a callback on some of the one-liners and quotes that we heard throughout the movie. So first one is between James Bond and the aforementioned log cabin girl. Poor actress doesn't even get a proper name, just log cabin girl. Um, and she says, James, I need you. Which Bond replies, So does England, and that's one that we le- led into the, the ski scene.
1: Yep, so we now, well, next one we pulled out is M and Money Penny. So M says, Money Penny, where's 007? Then Money Penny says, He's on a mission, sir, in Austria. Then M says well tell him to pull out immediately so that bit is just before the bit that you've just said isn't it andy
0: yeah transition straight into the scene of the two in bed so yeah. that's uh it's a nice little double entendre there by, by m so let's move on to the one bond and q um this is i believe where q is delivering the lotus esprit um and q says right now pay attention on 007 I want you to take great care of this equipment. There are one or two rather special accessories. To which Bond replies, Q, have I ever let you down? And then he he drives away, as Q says to himself, frequently.
1: So the last one from me, and the last quote for this episode, is between Bond and Triple X. So Triple X says, what happened to Kelber? And Bond says, he was cut off permanently so just a small one there so the next regular feature is the book verse movie feature and as mentioned earlier the novel um doesn't actually feature bond very much and as we said you know um ian fleming only let the the producers use the the book title for this film so the novel is told from the perspective of a bond girl and Bond only appears in the final act of the novel. So the novel takes place in a hotel located in New York, whereas the film, obviously, was seen in several locations, Sardinia, Egypt, and obviously at the beginning with the Austrian Alps.
0: Yeah, and uh, the, we mentioned this earlier, but the novel was critically panned. Fleming was so unhappy with the reception that he told Eon that they could only use the title and the plot points. Um, and as I also mentioned earlier, there is a tie-in novel written by Christopher Wood. That takes the plot of the movie and sets it in Fleming's universe. So, Jay, let's move on. Do you want to hear another of my world-famous Bond jokes? I do. I can't wait. By my, I mean someone else's written for me (laughs) world-famous Bond jokes. So, what do you call James Bond in the bathtub? I don't know. What
1: do you call James Bond in the bathtub?
0: Bubble 07.
1: I think that's a good one, Andy. That's a good one. I think all of the, the jokes so far that you said have been very good. Would you say they're, they're very similar to dad jokes?
0: They are similar to dad jokes, and you can't go wrong with the dad jokes. So I'm, I'm enjoying these, if I do say so myself.
1: I do. I, I enjoy them too. And it'd be great if any listeners have any... John, um, John any any listeners have any James Bond jokes that they can contact us and maybe we can feature
0: one in the future, Andy. That is a good idea. Or any John Bond jokes as well. I don't know who this John Bond <laughs> is, but if you know any jokes about him, we can maybe cover that on a bonus episode.
1: John Bond is um, James's Bond, James Bond's brother and he's a double a O something. So yeah, he's, he's, he may be a spin-off of the... Um, actually... Um, and you're kind of going off piece a little bit here. Do you know, did you know that Sean Connery has a brother and he appeared in a kind of spoof Bond film playing like the Bond character in the spoof?
0: I did not know that. There we go. Every day is a school day.
1: Apparently, I need to fact check this, but I'm sure I read it as part of the research. Moneypenny, and I think M, the actors appeared in that spoof as well. And Sean Connery didn't like that. I'm nearly 90% sure that is right.
0: <laughs> I've I got my cogs whirring in my brain because I seem to remember something about M and Moneypenny appearing in films that aren't Bond. And I, But I didn't realise there was the Connery connection.
1: Yes, I'm sure that came up as part of research. If it's wrong, we can cut this whole section out. But if I'm right, we can leave it in.
0: If we, if we leave it in and it's wrong, uh, please send your hate tweets <laughs> to at the rating room. Uh, say that they were all Jay's fault.
1: Oh, well, yeah, I have to hold my hands up. So, Andy, there's the, the, the it's time for the quiz now, the weekly quiz that we do. So, again, you know, I've said numerous times, Andy, there's no prizes for this. You don't even get a pat on the back, I'm afraid.
0: You, know, you would because... quickly run out of prizes because I am pretty much smashing this every week. A couple of weeks very... where you clearly cheat and you know, <laughs> try to undermine my confidence.
1: You, you are doing very good, actually, Andy. And I, I wonder if you're hacking into my computer somehow and seeing what I write up before I kind of present these to you. So you're doing very well. Although, to be honest, from memory, Andy, I think last week's one, um, you, I think it was very convincing that some my two false statements from memory, or at least one of them was very convincing.
0: Yeah, last week you foxed me a little bit, outfoxed me.
1: So let's see what I'm going to do this week. So again, Andy, two statements are correct and two are incorrect. So I'm going to go straight into it. So statement A, The producers originally wanted wrestler Giant Baba to play the role of Jaws. Second statement, Jaws was supposed to die at the end and the producers shot two versions of the ending. Next statement, Richard Kill's son played one of the extras on the beach when the car comes out of the sea. And the last statement. This was Roger Moore's least favourite Bond movie due to issues with the food on set and clashes with Barbara Buck. So, two are correct and two are incorrect.
0: Okay, so I am going to dismiss the final statement straight away because I seem to recall an interview where he said this was his favourite Bond film. I mean, hindsight being 2020, maybe at the time he felt differently, but I'm sure I've read somewhere that he said this was his favorite outing as Bond, so I'm going to say that one is incorrect.
1: Okay, do you want me to Um, tell you, or do you want to present the next
0: one? Let's present my next one. I, I think the other statement that's false is the second statement around two versions being shot. I think I think the ones that are true are the giant Baba in fact, cause, um a huge, huge name in Japan. And we've spoken recently about how the Asian market was quite a popular uh, bond destination. So I, I can see the validity in that. And I think Richard Keel's son playing an extra on the beach, I can see that happening as well. So I'm gonna say true false true false
1: okay so Andy you have got two correct and two incorrect so 50-50 I'm afraid and do you want to hazard a guess at which one you think is incorrect
0: um the two endings have I got that bit wrong
1: So they did film two endings and originally Jaws was supposed to die, but Broccoli had a feeling that the Jaws character might be popular. So they decided to film two um, versions of the ending. And interestingly, interestingly, Richard Keel didn't know whether his character was going to survive until the day of the premiere when he saw the finished cut of the film. And they included that bit where he's swimming off.
0: That is interesting. Yes. So that kind of almost made him question whether or not he was getting potential future work. So that's playing yes. with his livelihood a little bit.
1: <laughs> yes. So Andy, are you, are you locking in? If that's not a copyrighted phrase, your last one, are you, are you confident that Roger Moore, um, you said, if you think he said it was his favourite movie and my statement said it was his least favourite Bond movie. Are you saying that one is?
0: Um, one I'm sticking that... with that one, yeah.
1: Yes. Okay, yeah. So, yes, that's correct. So, the the, the other one that's false then, you know, you obviously guess this, is the producers originally wanted wrestler giant Bubba to play the role drawer. So, that is false. So, Andy, obviously I know you have an interest in wrestling, So basically, I Googled famous wrestlers from the 1970s for tall wrestlers to think who would play the role Jaws. And I went through numerous different wrestlers, and I found him, and he looked really big and quite scary. And it's interesting that you picked out straight away that he was famous in Japan, because as part of my research, I didn't know who he was, but it did list about um, him being... um, I can't remember which wrestling federation it was or, you know, organisation... But it said about Japan, so yeah, well done there, Andy. Your
0: depth of knowledge of wrestling is very good. You see, what you've done there is you've 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 outwitted me without realising that you've outwitted me. You've, you've <laughs> become too powerful for your own good. That's what you've done. I think if you'd have gone with Andre the Giant, which would have been an obvious giant wrestler from the 70s, I would have called you out on that straight away because... I probably know a little bit more about him than I do Giant Baba, but the use of Giant Baba, that's, it's genius. I must applaud you for that. Well done.
1: So two things I think, Ornje the Giant was on the list of people, but I knew, I knew of him and I thought, yes, it'd probably be too obvious. And that master genius, would you kind of say that has a bit of Blofeld about me there? You know how I kind of outwitted you there or am I more Emilio Largo? One of the weaker Bond villains.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it, there, is, there is a family trait shining through in recent episodes. Andy. Um, I dread to think where this is gonna end up in, in, you know, a few weeks' time. Full on stroking the cat whilst you're doing the podcast.
1: Andy, I just saw my other note actually. So um the giant barber, So I did write this down, but I like to kind of, with my full statements or the the statements that are correct, I also, on my notes, I include a bit of blurb. So the Giant Baba, he was the first Asian wrestler to win the NWA World Heavyweight title when he defeated Jack Briscoe in 1974. He also won a title again in 1979 and 1980. So I did all that research just to throw in a false statement. That is how dedicated I am to this
0: part. That is, that is fantastic. So you've, you've researched the lineage of the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship, which goes back to 1905, just to dig out those three dates in history to add to your devious plot of trying to make me sound foolish on a podcast. Um, this is this is as evil as evil can be. This is this is worse than Blofeld. Like, this is diabolical.
1: I'm the new supervillain. I could be cast, and you know where you thrown your hat in to be cast in a future Bond, and I said I wasn't interested in in acting. Maybe this is coming out. Maybe I'm just naturally have those skill sets. So if um, the producers want to cast me in a future Bond film, then fair enough. You
0: your lack of interest in acting is in fact an act. Yes, it's like Bond Inception. <laughs>
1: So that is the quiz done. So Andy, to be honest, I have lost count which ones you have got right and wrong. So I was thinking about putting a nice little log down to kind of monitor where we are, but then I thought I'm gonna to have to listen to each of the episodes again just to remember which ones because I made no notes of which ones you got right and I, my I've memory's not made like
0: copious yeah. notes. I think I'm on a bit of a downward trajectory at the minute. I think I'm very much fifty fifty at best lately.
1: Yes. Yeah, I, I think I have to agree. Um, so Andy, that's the quiz done. And now we're going to move to the, the part of the pod that I really enjoy. And this is the the rankings and the ratings. So obviously, we are the rating room podcast. And I'm going to run through the run times the kill count and the martinis, and then I will pass over to you, Andy. So Run times you obviously mentioned at the beginning two hours five minutes, so it is the joint third longest with the Man with a Golden Gun. So on Her Majesty's Secret Service, even though George Lazenby only had one film for Bond, he still holds the the number one for the longest Bond film. So you know he does get a bit of well pound per minute. He must be up there in terms of his screen time. So. We've got kill count next. And as I said at the beginning, 31 kills was the the highest Bond kill count movie so far. And obviously, you know, the last film we said, with a Golden Gun, he only had one. So out of the three movies so far, Roger Moore has 40 confirmed Bond kills. And that is an average of 13.3 kills per movie. So that is moving him slightly ahead now of Sean Connery that has an average of 12 kills per movie out of his six. And obviously, Joel Lazenbury had only one movie with five kills. So onto the Martini Watch. Obviously, Andy mentioned he does have a martini. And he's, well, he, he's not being a gentleman here, but triple x is being courteous here because she orders the martini for bond um at the bar where they they're kind kind of show showing not showing off but they're they're showing that they they've got that depth of knowledge of each other where they're you know talking about various bits and they order each other's drinks and then what happens is obviously in that bit bond then offers her a drink doesn't he? he finishes his drink um and then he says you want another drink and then he goes off but then he he kind of goes and finds a body doesn't he in a phone booth so on the camera i think it's one martini but yes he he definitely drinks the martini
0: yeah absolutely and this, like you said it's the point where they order each other's drinks so it's a it's a it's a technicality that we get that one in but it still counts um so as mentioned earlier what When Bond introduces himself as Bond, James Bond, how long does it take him? Uh, 35 minutes, 15 seconds. So out of the 10 Bond films we've watched so far, the introduction happens in seven. And this is by far the longest amount of time it takes. So, you know, top of the list in terms of those seven. But we're at seven out of ten now for the introductions. There's no wearing of the hat, there's no hat thrown. We're now on four in a row. Uh, of hatless Bond films, so we're, we're definitely on a streak here. And again, no Felix Leiter in the Spy Who Loved Me, so we've got a couple of films without his appearance. We'll have to see if and when he appears again.
1: Yes, and Andy, we've we've introduced. I'll let you do this one, Andy. But we've we've we started to record the box office, Andy.
0: Yeah, so I know, you know you're know you all about the money, as we talked about. So <laughs> um, from a budget perspective, this this is the most expensive Bond movie, at $14 million, but also uh, the most successful of the 10 so far, at 185.4, um, moving ahead of Live and Let Die. So interesting that two of the three uh, more films that we've seen so far are the, the two most successful, um, with The Man with the Golden Gun Quite a way down the list, actually, in number seven. So a little bit inconsistent, but very good box office return for The Spy Love Me. And maybe this is, as we alluded to earlier, because of the, the break in play, the three-year gap between movie releases, people were clearly desperate to see more Bond. And that shows in the box office. So it would be interesting to see if and how that pattern continues as we go along. Um, but just, um, I'll do a, shall I do a quick rundown of the top 10 since this is the first time we've discussed it. So we've got Spy Love Me at number 1, followed by Live and Let Die, Thunderball at number 3, Goldfinger at number 4, uh, Diamonds Are Forever at 5, You Only Live Twice at 6. Now all 6 of those took 100 million plus in the box office. Then we're, we're so we're below the 100 million barrier with The Man with the Golden Gun in 7th on a match to Secret Service in 8th from Russia With Love, 9, and Dr. No, 10. But all 10, massively, massively profitable when compared with their initial budget.
1: Yeah, and the one that really jumps out, Andy, is Goldfinger. 3 million budget, and then 120, just under 125 million return is massive. One thing I suppose we could do is... I need to check the source actually to see if these have been adjusted for inflation because comparing to, I'm just thinking obviously the modern films, they're going to be heavily skewed if it isn't uh, adjusted for inflation. I don't think they are adjusted for inflation if I'm honest. So maybe we can add a, another column in a table to adjust it for inflation. Otherwise, I think yeah. When we move to modern-day films, it's probably going to get a bit skewed, isn't it? Just just a thought that just occurred to me. Actually,
0: that's that's a good point because you know if a if a film takes twenty six quid and we adjust <laughs> it and it's twenty billion, I don't know what the, the figures are. Someone will figure it out online, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, that's that's a good point. We should definitely do that. It sounds like homework for someone.
1: Yes, and um, we can use Google and convert that. So one of my favourite sections is. The Bond girls, Andy, and I am struggling a bit with the rankings now because we are on to thirty-nine Bond girls now. So, Andy, I'm going to list my four first um because I know sometimes I kind of mix it up. Sometimes I see one of mine and you see one of yours. But I'm going to list my four. So, I'm going to start from bottom. Okay, so log cabin girl so yep she doesn't get a name in the movie she does get a name in the the novel which i can't remember but she doesn't get a name in the the movie but she is played by sue vanna so i've placed her in 36 because she's only in it for is it even a minute two minutes tops not very much dialogue obviously you know, the bit that you mentioned with you know, she needing a bond and you know, England needing bond as well. So yeah, she's gone in at 36. So that is just above Bambi and just below the naked swimmer, chew me, um, from the man with a golden gun. So yeah, in at number twenty-nine, Andy, is Felicia. So yeah, again, I think even though she's attractive, and like I said, she I kind of base mine in terms of screen time, as well as, you know, looks in terms of their interactions who say with bond Um, is not purely just on, on looks and also bond uses her as a body shield. So she, she is lower down, but she, you know, she's above Ruby Bartlett who, you know, I don't have much affection for and Rosie Carver. So she is above those, but Naomi, the the bikini villain slash Bond girl, she doesn't do much. So, you know, she is attractive. She does try to kill Bond in a helicopter, but she still can't kill Bond using a helicopter on a car and a sub. So again, she's not in it much. So again, would you, I would say she probably has less than 10 minutes screen time in the film, not much dialogue. Um, so, yeah, she's in at 21. Interestingly, Andy, as part of the research, apparently the actress got bit or stung by a bee during filming. So she was in lots of pain when she was doing her scenes. So the big one for this week's episode in terms of Bond Girl, Triple X goes in at number four. So very strong Bond Girl. You know, Well, obviously Bond girls, um, she is a Bond girl, but she is the Russian version of James Bond. So you've got to give her credit there. She's in a lot of the movie as well. She has lots of dialogue. She can hold her own. So she's very strong. So she's below my top three, who is Tracy, who obviously ends up marrying Bond. Pussy Galore in at number two. And then Tatiana Ramanova in at number three. And she's just above Honey Rider from Dr. No. So Andy, looking on that, actually, I didn't really kind of make this kind of um, link. A lot of my top Bond girls appear from the
0: earlier Bond films. Very interesting. Clearly, um, you're a, more a fan of the older women, probably based on, on your age. I think what was interesting going through, your list versus my list, is that the four Bond girls from this one, we've ordered in the same... Sorry, we've we've ranked in the same order in terms of one to four. Some slight differences in terms of the overall ranking, but I think we're more aligned this week than we have been for a while. So if I start at the bottom of my list uh, with Log Cabin Girl, I've gone slightly higher. She's number 30 for me, not, not as low as 36, uh, just above Ruby Bartlett. But yeah, you're right. She's... Uh, She's a quick in and out for James Bond, isn't she? In terms of the amount of time she appears on screen. Um, Slightly above her, Felicia, in at 25 for me. So just above Tilly Masterson. Now, I must say that when we're talking about Bond girls and how it is difficult to rank them now, because obviously there's so many, Tilly Masterson is a bit of a bar for me in terms of where I... Almost a starting point for some of the... The lesser used or or lesser seen Bond girl. So I the first question I ask is how do they compare to Tilly Masterson? Because she's probably one of the more memorable ones that I don't like particularly. So um, I mean she's kind of bottom third, but she's she's a bit of a benchmark for the for the minor placings. I would say so. That's just a bit of inside baseball into my um, area of thinking. But uh, Felicia very attractive, like you said would make a great secretary for someone like us i mean can you imagine if we had a secretary like her that would be that would be great um <laughs> naomi uh like you i've got at 21 solid mid table effort um nothing more to really add other than what you said earlier and then triple x anya amasova uh goes in at my number 3 uh for very much the same reasons you talked about very strong Bond girl but also you know the Bond equivalent so for anyone out there who's thinking should there be a female James Bond your answer is go back to 1977 when there already was one um very very strong so um our top four are the same girls but not the same order so I've got Tatiana still as my number one followed by Pussy Galore followed by Triple X followed by Tracy so it's quite interesting that we have similar tastes at certain elements of the race so at the top end of the the table we we have the same the same girls but then it does get quite different but this week we were we were pre-aligned in our thinking moving on now are we aligned in our thinking here so the theme song so you mentioned earlier this is the first theme song which is not the same title as the, the film title uh noted better by Carly Simon and our thinking here, just looking at it, is quite different. So I've got it as number three. I thought it was a really strong effort. I really like this song. Um, one of the better ones of the series. I was umming and ahhing between this and Goldfinger, to be honest, for the number two slot. But Goldfinger just wins out. It's more of a classic. But I think this is a solid, solid effort. So straight in at number three for me. How about yourself?
1: I, I think it is very good. Very good song. But at the moment, no one is managing to dislodge Shirley Bassey from one and two in my rankings. So I've got Carly Simon, Nobody Does It Better, in at number seven. So that is just below On a Majesty's Secret Service by John Barry, and then just above the James Bond theme song from Don't To Know by Monty Norman slash John Barry. So it's a song i do like but it's not my favourite there's not many Bond songs that I I dislike Andy apart from some of the later ones on in the franchise so you know obviously you you pull together the Spotify playlist for this and there's only a few songs that every time it comes on I have to skip Um, Nobody Does It Better is not one of those songs so it is a good song but it's yeah it, it it's not in my top five so yes we're, we we've got a bit of variation there like you pointed out you you've logged right, ranked it in at number three and i've ranked it in at number seven so moving on opening credits so obviously i mentioned at the beginning this is you know the one with roger moore in the opening credits we both think it's the only one so far that there is a bond that to win the opening credits. We've got the usual naked model silhouettes. We've got the gymnast on performing on the gun silhouettes. So it is a, a strong opening for me. So last week, I think I mentioned, you know, Mal with a golden gun was in at number seven. Things were getting a bit samey. So it was a number seven out of nine. So, you know, near the bottom. But this, I thought this was a marked improvement. And I think it's probably the best opening so far of the Roger Moore um, part of the franchise. So I'll pull it in at number four, Andy. What about you?
0: Yeah, you're right. It's a marked improvement from last time out. Um, I've gone at number five. So similar thinking. Obviously, we were, we were massively different on our thinking of Live and Let Die, which for me is, is the best opening sequence so far. Um I thought the man with the golden gun was quite lazy and I got that in at the bottom. So we've we've got extremes already in the more um part of the series. This one's kind of slap bang in the middle. It's some it's somewhat samey, familiar. There is you know, there is a, a pattern now, you know, there's a certain expectation. But I, I did like the touch of Moore himself appearing in the credits, I thought that was nice. And um the gymnastics part was a little bit different from what we've seen before. As opposed to just dare I say generic sexy dancing that we've seen in quite a few of the of the sequences so far, so the, the use of gymnastics I thought was quite a nice touch. So yeah, solid effort number five. So next thing is villains. So we have four villains uh, to go through here. I'll I'll order mine again. Well, I'll go bottom to top, and I've got. Uh, quite a variety here in terms of where I've placed them in. So we're up to 26 villains in total, now, or uh, you know, 26 instances of, of villains. Um, I'm going to start right at the bottom with Naomi, in at 26, and I think going back to your earlier point that she doesn't really do anything. I completely agree with that. She she is completely ineffectual, and you know. It's arguable whether she's actually a villain or not, she just happens to be on the villain side. The only thing she really does is an attempted kill in a helicopter, which she fails at. Um, So completely ineffectual, bottom of the list for me. And Sandor goes in at 25, because he's not much better either. He's introduced as a henchman, he goes to fight Bond, Bond kills him, end of story. So not impressed with their skills as villains, so they're, they're the bottom two of the list for me so far. Uh, moving up to kind of the mid-table position, so at 14 out of 26 is where I've put Stromberg. Difficult um, place, really. I thought it was a, an improvement on Scaramanga, um, but didn't have the qu- quite the same sort of energy levels or intimidation factor of the likes of a Blofeld or a or a Red Grant or a, a Baron Samadhi, for example. It was kind of middle of the road. Difficult to place much higher. So 14... Is where I've gone just between uh, Doctor Kananga and Mr Winter, Mr Kid, and then Jaws I've got as my favourite of the four goes straight in at number three for me. So only Goldfinger and Odd Job beat Jaws in terms of the overall franchise so far. I thought Jaws was a really, really good baddie. Um, obviously one of the more famous and iconic villains of the series. But I think there was there was a lot of layers to him. So obviously, there's the there's the immense size, there's the weapon of the the jaws, uh, the metal teeth that he's wearing, the jaws. But also, he's quite nimble for such a big guy. Super strength as well, seemingly impervious to pain. There's a, there's a lot of elements there that that make him uh, quite a difficult villain to uh, to defeat. Um, what are your thoughts on the on the villains of the Spy Who Loved Me?
1: Yeah, and in look at those so i'm going to start top i'm going to go backwards to yours so i just want to point out andy your top two villains that you picked out are from the same film so that's interesting i think goldfinger and job so jaws you've obviously ranked him at number three i've ranked him at number four so only one difference there so jaws is the highest ranked villain from the spiral of me So he is below Goldfinger, number one, Blofeld from A Majesty's Secret Service and Blofeld from You Only Live Twice. So it's a strong opening. And in terms of my list, Andy, he's the, obviously we're counting villains and certain henchmen or the main henchmen. So Jaws is in my list, the the top henchman, isn't he, compared to, our job would be your highest henchman um, in your list. So we, we both said, you know, at the beginning, he's, he's very popular and that's reflected in our rankings there. Interestingly, again, Andy, you put Stromberg at number 14 and I've done exactly the same thing. So again, he's middle of the ground. I didn't, I made a comment in a previous episode where I was a bit worried about the franchise in terms of villains with more you know now spectra's gone so i did comment on that but i do think stromberg and looking at the other villains actually from the more films dr kananga um slash mr big scaramanga are both only like one in two places above stromberg so middle of the ground these baddies um villains from the, the more you know movies in the franchise now Sandor I put him in at number 20 compared to your 25th position just because I he, he dies pretty quickly after being introduced but personally I, I didn't like Nick and Mr. Osata and Helga we've obviously mentioned in previous episodes he doesn't do much but he I think he offers a bit more or he's he's more intimidating than some of those other characters. Obviously, you mentioned at the beginning, he was the mighty Chang. He was a wrestler. He's he's big and bulky, isn't he? So I'd rather be taking on Helga in a one-on-one compared to Sandor, obviously, regions. But then Naomi, I'll put her in just above Bambi and Thumper. Uh, I could have easily put her a bit lower down. I might have been swayed by her looks, you know, in terms of the Bond villain. But yeah, like you said, she doesn't do much. You know, she can't beat Bond in a helicopter. She she probably has 10 minutes of screen time max. So yeah, she, she's in, um, in in at number 24 out of 26. So moving on, Andy, we are in our movies. So obviously at the top of the, the pod, we, we, we gave it you know, a score out of 10. So just to recap. I gave the Who Love Me a score of seven out of 10. So that is the same as Fundable and Dr. Know, which I gave seven out of 10. But as we said, you know, in previous episodes, we are given, you know, uh, an explicit rank um, in terms of the ordering. So there's going to be no joint. So even though it's joint with the other ones in terms of seven out of 10, I am ranking it in fourth position. So it is the highest out of the seven out of 10s. And it's only behind Goldfinger on Her Majesty's Secret Service and from What Shall We Love. Yeah, so that's fourth. So just above halfway, Andy. And a big improvement on Man With A Golden Gun, um, which I, you know, obviously gave last week's episode five out of ten. Whereabouts did, will you remind me of what you said in terms of Bio Love Me?
0: Yeah, so I also went with um, seven out of ten and uh, like you, we're not having joint positions. So... I've got 3 in at 7 out of 10, so I've got From Russia With Love and On Her Majesty's Secret Service as also 7 out of 10. Um, in terms of those 3, I've got On Her Majesty's Secret Service slightly edges it for me, so that gets that retains 3rd place. But I'd slightly preferred this to, From Russia With Love, so that drops down to 5. So also in at number 4 for me is The Spire Love Me. And again, huge improvement from, from last week's The Man With The Golden Gun, which still retains its wooden spoon position as things stand. So let's look at the movies in a slightly different way now and rank them by actor. So let's apply those ratings to how it looks for Roger Moore overall. So this is my second favorite Roger Moore film behind live and let die, which I gave eight out of 10, but for you slightly different story.
1: Yeah, I gave it seven out of 10. So I have not really, even though I think live and let die was an okay film. I did enjoy it. I only gave it six out of 10 just because when I, you know, I'm comparing them with each of the other movies that we've watched each week. So, you know, looking at them, I, I might take six out of 10. Yeah. So, Spy Who Love Me in at number, you know, seven out of 10. So, number one in terms of Roger Moore, Living Let like Die remains what was number two, and A Man with a Golden Gun in number three. So, Andy, interestingly, just to go back um, one bit, I noted that The Spy Who Loved Me, and which is displayed sure from Washer With Love, and The Spy Who Loved, Lo- Loved Me is one place below from Washer With Love on my list, whereas yours is one above Washer With Love. Obviously heavily features a Bond girl from Washer. Both films do. And they both love Bond, don't they? Because as we mentioned in um, episode two from Washer With Love, We made a comment that Tatiana says that she loves Bond quite, not early, but quite early in their their relationship. And now we see the spy who loved me, which is also a Russian Bond girl.
0: And that's things, Stan. Tatiana is my number one Bond girl. That's That's obviously swayed my thinking somewhat. Yes.
1: So... Finishing off the rankings, we're going to include this, but I think there's, there's little movement, Andy. I know I, I think we said this last episode. So uh, nothing's going to change, I don't think, in terms of the next Roger Moore films to move him out of second place. So in terms of the, the Bond actors for me, we've got Connery at number one, Moore number two, and Lazenby at number three. What about you, Andy?
0: Yeah, I, I retain the same order. I think Moore's... Performances have been very, very strong, Uh, and dare I say, stronger than I remember them being initially, as well. Certainly in in these early movies that he's in, you know, we've got a few more to go through yet to to completely judge him on his Bond tenure. But so far, it's been a very, very strong start. Even in in last week, the film being disappointing, his performance was still very good as Bond. So it's gonna take a massive change in his acting style, I think, to displace him from that second place. Can he catch Connery though? That's the question. Because you know Connery was was fantastic in the in the Bond role, and you know before we went into this was kind of right up there as the people's favourite. But is this going to change our minds? I I think there's there's a better chance of him getting the number one spot um, than the number three spot in terms of Moore's potential movement. So it'd be interesting to see how these next few films improve or don't, as the case may be. To bolster his case for the number one Bond.
1: Interestingly and also Andy obviously we've ranked the actors but when you look at the movies by actor and you look at the average score that we've given your average score of Roger Moore films is slightly higher of Sean Connery so far. Obviously we've got a few more more films to watch there. And I I know it's only a (laughs) 0.1 difference, but when I was updating the old spreadsheet and working out the averages, I noticed that. I thought, you know, on paper, it's very close. But obviously, in terms of the rankings, we're both quite clear that Connery is number one still so far.
0: That is something we need to keep a very close eye on to see if we are consistent with that. Um, But I guess we'll find out if there's any movement after next week. Now, as we mentioned earlier, what was going to be happening was uh, for your eyes only. But snatched from its jaws, see what I did there, um, is the film Moonraker, which is the 11th film in the series, and that's what we are be moving on to next week. So, big announcement time. Moonraker is not actually coming next week we're saving that for the new year and over the next few weeks as we head into the holidays we're going to be bringing you some brand new exclusive bonus content we're going to review a documentary that was on Prime a few months ago called Bond Girls Are Forever we're going to be doing profile pieces on Sean Connery and George Lazenby but coming up next week we're going to be talking about who could possibly be the next James Bond so listen out for that at the usual time and place next week And as we head into 2023, we've got more bonus content coming your way. Profile pieces on all the James Bond actors. Not to mention, exclusive interviews with some Bond fans from around the world. More details will follow soon. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. And happy holidays wherever you may be.
1: Well, that's this week's episode done. We hope you enjoyed it.
0: Special thanks to the band Sugar Tongue for the theme tune to the rating room. You can find them on all the usual social media channels be sure to check out this on the system available now on spotify
1: you can find and message us on twitter facebook tiktok and instagram by searching the rating room
0: you'll find all our social media links on our website theratingroom.com, and subscribe to our youtube channel or feel free to drop us an email at the at gmail.com goodbye thanks for listening and we'll see you next week right here on the rating room <music>